You're listening to The Product Edge, and I'm Jade Bennett, Australia's leading product management recruitment expert, founder of Middleton Executive, and a professional development and mindset coach. In this podcast, I take you on a journey into the minds of exceptional product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators, and hustlers. In each episode, I introduce you to experts in their field, and my mission is to help every product professional level up and reach their full potential by providing you with the skills, insights, and tools that you need to excel in your career and gain your product edge. I'm Georgia Hart, Principal Consultant at Middleton Executive and your guest host. I'm passionate about all things product and tech and can't wait to explore some amazing topics with Australia's top product leaders. Joining me today are two awesome women from Zipco, Cheryl Gledhill, Director of Product, and Lauren McCormack, Director of Product Payments. Cheryl has been working in product for 25 years, from the early days of Oz email in the 90s through to the dot-com boom and bust. She is now in her happy place in startups and leading the way at Zipco. Lauren has about 15 years of experience, predominantly helping deliver great products in the payment space. She has led teams including product management, strategy, project management, and design. And both of them are here today to discuss their views on how product managers have to adapt when a business is on its journey, scaling from startup to a much more mature company. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Cheryl. Would you mind by starting to tell us a little bit more about yourselves? Sure. Um, hi, I'm Cheryl Gledhill. I'm the director of product um, here at Zip, or one of the directors of product. Um, as you say, I've been in product for about 25 years, um, and you know, fairly recently with my move to Zip, I've moved from very early stage startups. So I've kind of been doing 15 years of the zero to one startups where you're scrambling to find product market fit. Uh, and I've spent the last two years at Zip, so they were absolutely in scale-up mode when I've joined and, you know, kind of the rocket ship to the moon ever since then. So a lot of learnings about the different types of product management um, when you're in a, a much larger organisation. Hi, Georgia. So I'm Lauren McCormack. I'm the Director of Payments Product uh, here at Zip. I've been here about two years. Uh, so Cheryl and I are kind of yin and yang. I came from a much more corporate enterprise world of product management where there's a lot of structure um, and process and organisation. And I've come to Zip um, as it's in its scale-up journey. And so for me, I've had the opposite journey of learning how to work in an organisation that's um, less structured and organised and that, that moves a lot faster. I think you mean chaos, Lauren. <laughs> Well, it'll be interesting to get both of your perspectives then. So look, to qualify as a scale-up, a company will have a track record of high growth, is unlocking and accessing new markets for growth opportunities, and generally expanding the team and achieving year-on-year growth. In one of my last episodes on the Product Edge, we discussed scaling cross-functional teams, but what do product managers need to learn to adapt to a growing business? You know, startup land is very different to working in an enterprise, as you've both just um, experienced. So what are some of the main challenges that you've come up against taking a product from startup to scale up? Um, I mean, I, I, I must admit, I was quite challenged my when I first started at Zip because, um, as I said, I've come from very early stage startups where people are saying, you know, should this idea exist? And you're doing MVPs constantly and you're like, wow, I got like 100 users to my product. And that's like this, this amazing thing. Um, I was pretty challenged by 
just a much larger organization, but also the fact that we'd already had product market fit by the time I came in. So it wasn't, you know, should this thing exist? It was how do we optimize this thing uh, to keep growing, you know, knowing that we've picked off a lot of the low-hanging fruit when it comes to our user base. You know, what other features should we be launching? What other directions should we be going in? Um, you know, we were really kind of blowing the lights up when it came to our user acquisition and engagement when I started. Um, but there's a bunch of other challenges that come with that. So when you are in a 30-person startup, you all have a pretty, um, you've almost got ESP with each other where you know what everybody's working on. You don't have to spend a lot of time on communication because generally it's small enough that you've, you've got kind of a really clear idea of what everyone's working on. Um, I found the, the biggest change for me was very deliberate communication and, you know, I went from being able to tap someone on the shoulder and just say, here's an idea, let's do it. And you've launched it by the end of the day. And then you go, um, when you're at a larger organization, there's just a lot more meetings, a lot more bringing people on board, a lot more kind of sign off. Um, and when I first started, we were probably um, a bit less of that and we were still moving really quickly. Um, and I think the challenge for us is keeping the pace of a startup because um, you want to be able to move quickly. You want people to be able to make, you know, really autonomous decisions to do the right thing for the product. But at the same time, you've got a massive org that you need to get on board. You know, you've got legal, you've got compliance, you've got marketing, you've got commercial, and all of them need to know what you're doing with the product. And that takes very deliberate communication, um, which I think when you've come from a startup, you don't necessarily have those, those skills or the, just those ways of working. Yeah, and that's something that I hear a lot about when working with candidates, you know, um, back when I used to recruit in the agency world, it was very much the same, you need to have experienced working in an agency, it's so different, so I guess it's, you know, that similar pace of um, changing a startup to them, a bit slower, getting used to the process, and we would like to say red tape. <laughs> well, I think um, it is also just slowing down to speed up, though, so, and this was yeah. kind of, I guess, my great mistake when I first came in, I was like, I don't need your permission to do this, I'm just going to go ahead <laughs> and do it because it's the right thing for the product. And then I realized the aftermath from not bringing people on board with what you're doing is just not worth the speed that it takes to get something into market because then you've got to do all of the, the follow-up meetings about, you know, who made that decision and what inputs you used. And it, it ended up slowing me down a lot more than just, I guess, communicating that up front. Would you say that was probably your biggest learning curve then um, going from? It's one of them. Yeah, just being very <laughs> deliberate about communication. And I think, you know, I was quite, um, you know, startup people tend to have a bit of a chip on their shoulder when it comes to ways of working. Like our way is the best way, of course. Um, and, it, you know, it is when you're a startup, when you've got 30 people, and that is the best way to do it. When you're a 30-person startup, you don't want to spend all day in meetings because you're not being very efficient if you are. But yeah, it, it was the wrong attitude to come in of, of, you know, we've got to just do it the way startups do it because it, it doesn't work in a 500-person company. No, absolutely. What's been your biggest learning curve, Florin, in, you know, working from massive organisations to a smaller one like Zip? Um, yeah, really good question. And, and it's funny hearing Cheryl talk because when I first came into Zip, I felt we had not a lot of structure in meetings and um, I came, I actually came into Zip as a project manager and so I was trying to get decisions made 
And I just couldn't figure out how to get decisions made in an organisation that doesn't have committees and meetings and delegations of authority. So that was um, that was an interesting learning curve at the beginning. But having now come in and, and leading a product team, I think the biggest um, adjustment for me has been, I guess, the appetite for risk. It's almost sort of the opposite of what Cheryl's saying is, you know, in a, in a large corporate organisation, you know, as a product manager, you want to put a feature out, you write a business case. Once you've built it, there'll be a lot of testing. You might not even have the decision about whether to push that to production. It might go to a committee to be signed off by, you know, six execs from technology and risk. And, and you come into an organisation like Zip where we're literally shipping hundreds, if not thousands of releases every month. And products just have so much more control over what we're releasing, when we're releasing it, whether it's ready to go. Um, so the risk appetite is a lot higher and we've got a much greater appetite for failure as well than you have in a larger organisation. So often in a big organisation, if you release something and it doesn't get the customer numbers you, you know, anticipated or it breaks something, it's a disaster. Whereas here, it's like we we build quick, we experiment, we'll release to a thousand customers and see how it goes um, and then you know, just decide where to take it from there. And so it's been a real adjustment in the way of working and and I am naturally quite a risk-averse person, so learning to take risks and experiment and know that of all the things you release, they're not all going to work um, has been a real adjustment for me. But it's it's been a really good learning and even, I'm not sure that I would, but even if I did go back to larger organisations, um, it's a really it's been really good for me and a really good skill to develop. Do you think that's something that you would take into a you know a larger organization? Would that be something you would try and implement? That kind of um, build and was it, was, yeah, build it and yeah, the the experimentation and I think the appetite for failure. I think that is why companies like Zip and other tech companies are successful and why they're winning market share from traditional incumbents is because they. They move quickly and they release new features and see if it works or not rather than spending six months doing the analysis. And I think, yeah, if I did go back to a larger organisation, I'd definitely want to take that that appetite for um, trying and learning and failing with me for sure. At Middleton Executive, we often see, you know, once companies go through that scale-up journey, generally a high staff turnover and it tends to be because you know there's a lot more regular regulation compliance um it can take longer to make decisions although not feeler and it's been much quicker but how can um i guess well potentially founders but also project product managers prepare for that scale-up journey like is there anything that you could advise uh, any tips to help them thrive in a scale-up as opposed to being used to working in a startup yeah, I mean, I kind of touched on it before. It's it's about attitude for one. So so every way is different and there is no one best way of doing things because it's very different ways of working in very different um, uh, maturity of companies. Um, you know, I sort of said when I came from a startup background, um, my attitude coming in was, you know, I'd rather apologise than seek forgiveness and that lasted maybe a good six to 12 months. And then I found, oh my God, I'm spending all my time just apologizing. It's kind of easier to seek forgiveness and to seek permission in the first place. Like my way is just not working here. Um, and I think because we are a regulated industry, so we our product um, is regulated. Um, and then we, we also have the buy now, pay later um, code of conduct. Um, 
And what I realized was it's really great to run quickly and make autonomous decisions when you know the landscape. And I think the problem was coming from startup and coming from, you know, not a regulated background. Like I didn't even know where the crocodiles were under the surface. It's all very well to say, you know, it's fine just to experiment and fail and break things, but you've got to know what the guardrails are. Um, and I think that would have been a really helpful thing for me coming in is really understanding, okay, this is not startup land anymore. You've got a very different environment to work in. At least just learn the rules before you come in here because I think startup people tend to have this whole, like, I'm ripping up the rule book and I'm doing it my way. And, yes, that's really important, but you've got to understand the rule book before you rip it up. Um, and I think that would probably be be my learning. Like, just understand, like, take these risks, but understand what the guardrails are before you do it. Yeah, I think that goes for anyone joining any new company. You know, learn what the do's and don'ts are before jumping into trying to change things. <laughs> Absolutely. Would you agree, Lauren? I would. And, and for me, it was similar in terms of trying to get decisions made, et cetera, I really had to learn how do things work here rather than having an expectation that it was going to work the way that I was used to things working. Yeah. And I yeah. think Lauren and I have both worked with different people. And, you know, there's many different forms of product management. There's this, the product management you do at an early stage startup. There's a, the product management you do at kind of one of the FANG and, you know, like Facebook and Instagram, they've got a certain way or Spotify. There's product management that you do at a bank. And every person thinks that their form of product management is the real form of product management. And the other one is like, it is not, not enough of this or too much of that. And it really is just about letting that attitude go. There's just many forms. They all need to exist and they all exist for different reasons. And there is no one true form. Um, so it's just letting that go in your head as well. Absolutely. And I'm interested to see when once product management, well, when it keeps evolving, what it's going to look like in 20 years time, is it going to be what, you know, this is the role of a product manager and this is just what they do, or is it still going to be dynamic and diverse and doing lots of different things? Um, I like to use the analogy of project management. So you could be a project manager who builds buildings or a project manager who runs events or a project manager that builds software. And they're all real project management even though they have very different skills and, and things that you would need to bring to the table. And I think product management is evolving to be a, a broad range of roles under an umbrella and there's lots of different types of roles that can sit under That's, that umbrella. Yeah. Um, what questions should product managers ask themselves if they're unsure if they should join a startup or join a bigger organisation? I think there's a few um, different questions that that someone should ask themselves, and it does take a lot of self-awareness to make that decision. Um, the first thing that I'd be thinking about if I was a product manager, especially if I was you know, relatively early in my career, is how do I like to learn? So if you're in, and I've never worked in a, in a tiny startup, but if, you, if you're in a tiny startup, you could be the only product manager reporting to the founder, or, or maybe there might be one or two. And so you're not going to be learning from your peers in product management who've done this role elsewhere. What you will be doing is learning by doing. So you're going to be figuring out problems for yourself. You're going to be hands-on. You're going to be testing and learning and figuring it out as you go. Um, but you won't have that, that team of peers who've, who bring different skills from different organisations. Whereas if you're in a, a scale-up or a larger sort of organisation like the size of Zip, 
Um, you're in a team, you know, we've got 40 or so people across the product team who've come from a range of backgrounds and you can learn from your peers, you can bounce ideas off your peers. Um, we have, which Cheryl implemented actually, um, a forum we call product sparring where we bring the product managers together and if someone's just got a problem that they are struggling with or can't figure out to solve we just spend an hour trying to solve that problem so that's what you get from being in a, a slightly larger organization that you wouldn't get if you are the only pm um i think another thing to think about is is what you actually want to do in the role itself so if you are in a, a pre-launch startup or you know very early post-launch startup you're going to be looking for product market fit. There's going to be a lot of testing and learning, a lot of experimentation, trying to find what works. Whereas if you come into a, a larger organisation that's already found product market fit, it's likely that you're going to be focused on growth, 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 growth. So thinking about what it is that you want to do in your role and where that sweet spot is for you um, is important. And the last thing that I think people should be thinking about is, is, I guess, their personal situation and their personal appetite for risk. So I've got friends who've worked in startups who've told me that, you know, they worry every payday if the money's going to pop up in their bank account and, and sometimes it doesn't and they go a couple of months without getting paid and then there's this uh, happy day where three months of back pay just suddenly appears in the account. Um, if you are working for a larger organisation that's got a lot of investor backing or, or maybe is profitable, it's less likely to be an issue, right? You know that on payday, the pay is going to turn up. And so, you know, that's something people might not consider until they're six months in and, and the pay doesn't hit their account, but not everyone's in a position personally to take that risk. And, of course, not all startups work that way, but it is something to consider um, when you're thinking about your next role. Yeah, stability is so important and I always advise people to you know, if you're speaking to a startup, ask about the financials. Don't be don't be scared to ask the founders. You know, are you funded? Are you bootstrapped? Where's the money coming from? <laughs> um, That's a great point. We absolutely. were just talking. No, yes, no one wants to work for free. <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I've done a couple of startups that that haven't made it, and you know, I was just actually talking to Lauren about this yesterday. Um, make sure you really go through the business model and it makes sense to you. Because I've I've jumped into a startup where I'm like, I don't understand your business model and those numbers don't add up in my head. But obviously it's just me that's not reading it properly. But actually, no, it was it was that the numbers very literally didn't stack up. Um, so yeah, and that's the greatest thing about early stage startup is you can really go hard on the numbers. And if it's a good place for you to be they will be really transparent with the numbers with you and also be really clear about oh sorry be really clear about what you are expected to hit in the first year so if they've got you know a thousand users is the expectation that you're going to take that to five hundred thousand in the first year or is the expectation that you'll take that to you know ten thousand it's it's pretty important to understand that you're aligned on what your role is going to be and, and what you're going to be bringing in and so I interrupted you Lauren that's okay. Um, I think the flip side, though, to that risk conversation that I probably should have raised is, of course, the reward can be a lot higher if you go into a startup. And if I think about um, at my age, everyone I know in my peer network who's kind of financially free and mortgage-free living in a nice suburb in Sydney, they all got into very good startups early, Atlassian, Afterpay, Canva. So while there is a higher risk, you know, there is potential for a much higher reward if you get into the right one early. 
Yeah, and I think uh, what I see happening in the startup world is you learn so much faster. Your career is accelerated because you're expected to do so much more. Um, and yeah, I think that's a huge reward that you wouldn't necessarily get working for an enterprise where you're a little mm-hmm. bit more siloed and restricted to what you do in, in that role. Um, Absolutely. Speaking on the flip side, you know, I think people love that startup culture of what I've just said, being able to learn a lot more, accelerate your career, reap the rewards of working for a startup. What what can leaders do to maintain a startup culture once they've scaled or at enterprise level? Is that enterprise, is it even possible to have a startup culture? I mean, it depends what you mean by startup culture. If you're kind of talking ping pong and casual shoes, like that's... No, no, no. I guess when it comes to ways of working, though, I mean, I I really do. And I think um, Lauren touched on this earlier, but the best part about working for a startup, in my view, and a scale-up as well, is just this ability to fail. Um, And I love the fact that we can come up with an idea, we can run it to ground, we can launch something to production. And you know what? It doesn't get the numbers that we want. And we can look at it and we can run it and go, you know what? This was our hypothesis. We thought that we could make users do this by doing this. Or we thought that that we could launch this feature that would kind of have this impact. And it hasn't. And that's okay because we we got the learning from it. Like when I very first started at Zip, I had a hypothesis about how people would shop through the app. Um, I was given, you know, product team for two weeks. I launched something. It didn't get the numbers that I was expecting. And I was like, wow, that hypothesis was really wrong. I was really surprised by it. But it was a great learning that I still talk about in the company to this day because it was like, oh, no, we tried that. And, you know, these are the reasons why that hypothesis is flawed. And that was actually something to really celebrate. And I think at a larger organization, I'd be so much more scared of sticking my neck out because I feel like in the performance review, you would get something like, well, you launched this feature and you didn't get the numbers or you had this idea and we can see that that went nowhere. And so you you did a bad job. Whereas I think it's really our goal as leaders to celebrate that and to say, wow, look, you know what? You did so well this year. You ran four experiments. One of them worked, three didn't. But look at the learnings that you got from that that we could then share back to that team. And, you know, I really think um, the best way you learn is by failing. Like you don't win as much from your, sorry, you don't learn as much from your winnings that you do from your failures. So it's making an environment where people feel really comfortable to come up with these crazy ideas and they're one in a million shot, but actually being given the space to make it work. And most of the time you're going to miss, right? Because they're one in a million, like, yes, if you win, amazing. But just really taking that environment where you're celebrating failure, you're making it safe to fail. But you also kind of, again, know where the guardrails are, where it's like, okay, don't fail with that one because the company will, you know, fall apart. Um, but, you know, you're safe to fail in these areas. Yeah, no, I love that. And um, this kind of loops back to what you were saying earlier, Cheryl, about, you know, learning the rules of the business and the market that you're operating in. You know, I think what can be exciting for product managers is going into a new market and understanding a new customer base and how, you know, what drives them or motivates them to use the product. Do you think product managers need certain skills to operate in a particular market? Like for me, I don't have a financial head. I don't think I'd be a very good product manager in finance. (laughs) Um, But, you know, everything can be learned. Everything can be taught. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, skills can be learned. I think that the 
thing that's really important working in financial services is it is a heavy, as Cheryl's touched on already, it's a heavily regulated industry and the regulation is complex. There's different licenses, different regulators, different things that we have to comply with. Um, and, you know, obviously in an organisation the size of ZIP, we have, you know, a compliance team and a legal team and, and we do, we are, are a regulated entity. We have licences we need to comply with. Um, we also don't have certain licences, which means there are certain things that we can't do. And while you can work with those specialists, if we want to move fast, product managers need to have an understanding of the basics of, of what are the guardrails, what can we do, what, what can't we do, because you're not going to move fast if you need to go to legal every single time and say, are we allowed to launch this, this new thing? Um, obviously, when it gets down to the wire, we, we do get those specialists in, but product managers really do need to understand, if I make this change to the way repayments work, for example, that's touching the boundaries of our licence. So that's really important and it's really important, I think, to move fast is to is to understand that rather than kind of see it as something that's, you know, another team's responsibility. Um, that said, it can be learned. Um, and when I'm, you know, and when I'm filling a team, I look at the skills across the whole team. So if I have a team, for example, that is all X fang X tech company product managers and I've got a vacant role, I might look for an ex-banker who's really familiar with the, the financial services industry. But if I've got a team that's full of ex-bankers, I might be looking for someone with that different skill set so that, you know, I can complement that skill set across the team. Um, and I think that's that's not just um, to do with you know, your background in terms of what kind of companies you've worked for, but as we've alluded to, there are so many different skills in product management from you know, commercials and pricing to user experience to marketing and, and go-to-market plans and understanding how the technology works. And I think it's really important, you know, we're fortunate in an organisation of our size that you do have a product team that's got a group of people. And so you can hire in those different skills across the team so that you can learn from each other and complement each other across the team got a bit of a different view to Lauren um I mean yes I think the coming from a regulated environment when you know the regulation so much easier I do think it occasionally takes somebody from a different industry to say this could be better or this could be faster and looking at I don't have a, a specific example but just think like I would not touch healthcare because number one to me it sounds very regulated and I would have to learn that but I do wonder if, you know, someone who comes from Deliveroo or Uber Eats could be working in healthcare and bringing learnings from these other industries and make things like healthcare, which doesn't change very often because of the regulation, but really kind of shake it up. Um, and I think, you know, the reason um, when Larry and Pete first started Zip, like, I think the reason they could have such a crazy startup was because they did break all of the rules. And I think someone coming from within the industry wouldn't have done it. They would have said, oh, no, to give credit, you have to charge interest, for example, because that's the way it's always been done. And I think it did take outsiders to go, but why? Like, there's other ways of doing things and you could bring learnings from other industries into this existing thing and really kind of change the way the industry works. Yeah, I love that. And I think. Um, that's something that I've been aware of when 
recruiting product managers is trying to get different ideas and different perspectives this is why we're also passionate about diversity you know it's having people with different thoughts and ideas and yeah if you're hiring a team of people that have all come from the same background you're not going to be challenging the market or the industry and creating something new you're just copying what is already out there potentially I'd love to know a little bit more about you guys. Um, feel free to take it in turns to answer, but what's been one of your greatest achievements in your career so far? Um, I'll go first. Um, for me, it's it's about people. So definitely seeing other people grow in their roles, um, someone who's terrified of public speaking do a great presentation or see someone who um, didn't really want to put themselves forward for promotion because they didn't think they were ready to get it. Um, they're the things, you know, I think that I look when I look back on roles, they're the things that I remember and that stick with me and that make working sort of enjoyable. I find, especially with women, but definitely for men as well so often confidence is the thing that's holding somebody back you can see you can see it in someone else that they're absolutely brilliant and that they're really smart and capable but they don't see it in themselves and if you can get them to see that you can see people do great things I love that one (laughs) I mean I I will echo Lauren there because it is it is the people and it's the providing opportunities for people and stretching them I guess beyond where they think they can go. And that's just such a, I mean, that's literally the reason I come to work every day is, you know, just for that opportunity. Um, I mean, for me, it's it's no one thing, but, you know, I kind of started off in the 90s with this little thing called the internet. And, um, you know, it was like people were just getting email addresses and Hotmail wasn't even around yet. And for me, the fact that I've actually just built a career out of dabbling with computers has been the most, like, people pay me to do this. <laughs> I would probably do this anyway, and that's crazy to me. Um, so I don't know, just the fact that there has been longevity and, you know, guess what, this internet thing took off. And um, I, I've just, yeah, the fact that I've managed to make a career out of something that was very non-traditional, you know, I didn't go to uni, I didn't get the economics degree or the law degree, and the fact that I'm kind of still here 25 years later is just wild to me, so. No, it's super impressive, and it's funny you touched on that. I remember the days when I used to go to my grandparents' house because we didn't have a computer growing up, and uh, we had the dial-up connection and that horrible noise. The noise. (laughs) (laughs) Our kids will never know what that sounds like. No, and how slow it was. It would take five minutes. You had to go and make a cup of tea to wait for the page to load. And and then your brother's banging on the door like, I need to use the phone because it's only one phone. (laughs) (laughs) And um, what would you say is one of the the biggest obstacles that you've had to overcome. I mean, for me, oh, sorry. you go, Cheryl. You go, you go, you go. <laughs> um, for me, it was the, the time in my career when I came back from maternity leave. So I, I had two kids in, in two and a bit years, and my confidence was shot when I got back from maternity leave, especially the first time. You know, it, it is a big adjustment, and you, you kind of feel like your brain's falling out of your head, and you're not going to be able to do anything anymore. Um, and I had non-sleepers, so I had you know, three years of broken sleep and I, I can remember staring at a spreadsheet, my eyes just going blurry and not knowing how to even read it. Um, and my career did slow down in that period. There was, you know, I was offered a promotion that I passed up. I kind of I floundered for a couple of years and it really impacted my confidence. And I think coming back from that um, has has definitely 
it's been the biggest obstacle and getting my career back on track and kind of at a point again where I'm, I'm leading a team. Um, it, it was really challenging and I think it's challenging for a lot of women who who have kids, especially because, you know, nowadays when we have kids, you know, a little bit older in our 30s, not, not everyone, but that was me. Um, yeah, you are at a midpoint in your career. You might be managing a team. You've got a, a reasonably big role and then you, you go off for a while and it is really hard to come back from. Um, so yeah, that's been my biggest obstacle. Yeah, I experienced that one too, and yeah, that was not fun. Um, I think being a woman in tech has been both an obstacle and a blessing. Um, I think early on in my career, I've had to work twice as hard as everybody else to really kind of prove out, you know, a woman in tech. So, you know, I kind of joke about this, but you know, we're going to have reached equality when women can be really mediocre and still get promoted, just like men can. <laughs> because <laughs> if you look around at all of the senior women that we know, like they're all exceptional. And we have to be exceptional uh, because if not, like you get, you know, discounted, disregarded, um, you're not seen as, um, you know, being as smart or having the skills or anything else. So it's, but I will say the flip side of that is being a senior woman in tech now in my career and now that the world has shifted and everything else, it's probably an advantage. Um, but yeah, in my early 20s, it, was, it definitely was not a fun place to be. No, I think a lot of uh, women can relate to that in, across all industries. And, yeah, I'm excited to see a lot more female leaders start emerging. And um, it's something that we're really passionate about, Middleton Executives, to so do a lot of coaching with women on, you know, chasing that promotion and, you know, asking for that pay rise. The amount of times we see women asking for less money than men for the same job drives me insane. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. And well, there's that adage that, Women will apply for a job when they meet all of the criteria. Yeah, men just need to meet more than half. Yes, and um. you hear that conversations. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. Oh, look! It was so lovely speaking to you both. How can people stay connected with you? Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn. So just look me up, Cheryl Gledhill. Uh, I'm on Twitter, but I mostly just post memes. So. <laughs> <laughs> But Cheryl Gledhill on Twitter as well. Yeah, and, and I'm on LinkedIn, just Lauren McCormack. Amazing. We'll make sure we include it in the show notes. And lastly, what would be your one piece of advice for product managers? Um, I mean, product management is so completely varied um, as far as industry, as far as skills, as far as areas of expertise. So just figure out what really drives you and what you love. You don't have to be good at all of them, um, you know, one of the things I do when we interview PMs is I get them to stack rank how they are, you know, user experience versus strategy versus technology. You don't have to be good at all of them because there's a place for all types of different product managers. So just yeah, figure out what you're good at, figure out what you love doing, and then go for it. Mine would be to, to back yourself. So product managers are the expert in their own product and, and part of the role, especially in heading towards larger organisations is you can often be the most junior person in the room trying to convince execs of your idea, but product managers should remember that you are the expert in the room at your product and the thing that you are there presenting, you know better than anyone else. So back yourself and back your ideas and go for it. Yes, love that one. <laughs> uh, Lauren, Cheryl, thank you so much again. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to The Product Edge brought to you by Middleton Executive. 
You can head to theproductedge.com.au to subscribe to Australia's number one podcast for all things product management. I would love for you to subscribe, rate and leave us a review. Until next time, I look forward to introducing you to more product leaders, entrepreneurs, creators and hustlers who will share their insights and experiences to help you level up and reach your full potential.